If you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Luke, chapter 15, or you can follow along in the same text as printed there in your bulletins. Um, I have a title for my sermon, I don't always, and my title is, uh, Not All Who Are Lost Wander. Not All Who Are Lost Wander. It's pithy, isn't it? I know. And I have a subtitle for my sermon. That's pretty good too, and that is, why good people struggle with Jesus and bad people seem to love Him. Why good people struggle with Jesus and bad people seem to love Him. We've got two parables that Jesus tells in response to some grumbling good people who don't like um, what He's saying but also what He's doing by befriending and welcoming people who are notoriously bad people. And these parables highlight the problem we have of being content with our own goodness. And so that's what we're going to think about this afternoon. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that you would come and do what you promised to do, which is to unstop the ears of the deaf and open the eyes of the blind. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me, beginning verse 1 of Luke 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Well, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I had lost. Well, just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, these are famous uh, parables. Uh, Even more famous is the next one, the prodigal son or the lost sons. Um, We don't have time to go through that today, so we're just going to go with these two and save the prodigal son for another day, or probably two. Um, It's very hard to do the prodigal son in one sermon. But the setup is the same for for all three of the parables, and that is the grumbling of the uh, good religious people about who Jesus hung out with and his attitude towards them, that he... um, seem to actually love and delight in friendships with people who are notoriously bad people. And the people that he's correcting here are not, um, they're not straw men characters who don't understand the idea of grace at all. Right? They're, they're Pharisees and scribes. They know the Old Testament. They know that the Jewish people are a people of grace, that God has had mercy on them. Um, if you gave them a test about theology, they'd probably do really well on it. They'd say, no, I don't think that uh, I'm such a good person that God has to love me. I think God forgives my sins and is merciful to me. Um, but there was some disconnect between what was in their heads about that and what was in their 
attitudes and their hearts about it. And their hearts got exposed by these encounters where Jesus was being really nice and affectionate towards bad people. And then they saw these things stir up a sediment on the bottom of their hearts to say, look, I, that bothers me. And they grumbled about it. And it sort of exposed their hearts to say, this is what's going on inside, um, despite what I say in my head about God and how he deals with people. So Jesus tells these stories kind of to come in stealth on them and let them have a chance to see that what's in their heart is different than what's in their head. And so it doesn't say how well they received these things, but we'll see how well we receive them. C.S. Lewis does a similar thing with a story he tells in The Great Divorce. Um, I don't know if you've read The Great Divorce recently, but um, if you hang around me, I'm going to mention it a lot. I'll just tell you, I really like that book. And uh, in one of the scenes, you know, the premise of The Great Divorce is there are people from the outskirts of hell who are on a trip to the outskirts of heaven uh, with some implied promise that they would be able to, to go into heaven if they wished. And then the people on the outskirts of heaven meet them and you have the conversations kind of at the borderland there. That's the setup of the book. And the people who come from the outskirts of hell are called ghosts because they've already started to, to lose their, substant, their substance as human beings because of the trajectory they're on away from God. So they're, they are less solid, but the ones who are there at the outskirts of heaven are the more solid ones. And there's one guy there uh, on the outskirts of heaven named Lynn. And he has um, been received to heaven, even though on earth he was a murderer. And the guy's coming up from the outskirts of hell who knew him on earth and knows that he's a murderer and is frustrated when he sees him there. You know, he says that uh, it's not right that you should be here and I should be there. That should be flipped, right? Because I'm a decent person and you're a murderer. And they have this conversation. The ghost figure says, look, I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But I've done my best all my life, see? I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort of chap I was. And Lynn, the solid one who's there from the outskirts of heaven, says, it would be much better uh, not to go on about that now. Right, And uh, the ghost says, well, who's going on? I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? Now, I'm only a poor man, but i got to have my rights same as you, see? Lynn, the angel, or the, I mean the, uh, the solid one says, oh no, it's not as bad as that. I haven't got my rights or I shouldn't be here. Uh, you'll not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. The ghost says, well, I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Lynn says, then do. At once, (laughs) ask for the bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking and nothing can be bought. The ghost says, well, if they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself getting in the same boat as you see. Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. If I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago. And you can tell him I said so. And he winds up uh, going back somewhat self-satisfied to the outskirts of hell. Um, Jesus came to give bleeding charity to bad people. 
I mean, that's the clear message of the gospel. He came to give uh, mercy to people who don't have any claim on it at all, at all, who don't have any right to it. And because of that, he constantly butted heads with good people. Right? Everybody that met him that was a good religious person butted heads with him. Right? They were frustrated by him, irked by him, constantly vexed by him. And the people who were self-consciously bad people are the ones who warmed up to him instantly, it seems. So these parables uh, expose what uh, the grumbling hearts of good people really contain. The grumbling hearts of good people, they also reveal what the heart of God contains. And both of those things are important for us to know. Um, the opposition to Jesus is odd because it's, uh, it's completely bipartisan. Or if you notice this in the Bible, that the, the uh, religious liberals, the uh, Sadducees, and the religious conservatives, the Pharisees, had very little in common with each other. They disliked each other intensely. They flattered themselves that they weren't like each other. But in a uh, fit of reaching across the aisle, unanimous cooperation, they came together to murder Jesus, right? Because they hated him. There's one thing they can agree on is that they hated Jesus. The good liberals and the good conservatives both hated him. And uh, I wanted to look at it kind of from both of those angles to see if we can get a little bit better picture of what Jesus is saying. So first of all, I want to talk about why good conservatives uh, struggle with Jesus. Good conservatives don't tend to like Jesus. The deep, and I don't mean you, I mean like your crazy cousin, conservative, you know, the one that's blowing up Facebook. Um, I would never accuse you of this. The uh, deep assumption for the good person who's a conservative is that good people are loved and rewarded by God. And that bad people are lost and judged by God. That must be the way things are. And I am a good person. Good people are loved and rewarded. Bad people are lost and judged. I'm a good person. Most people have better manners than to say that out loud. But it's the heart level assumption of how life works and how life with God works in people's minds. Uh, conservatives tend to be pretty comfortable with what Jesus does with these binaries when he talks, this whole lost-found business that um, might sound old-fashioned to some people, uh, to someone who's conservatively-minded. That's okay. I, the binaries, good, bad, us, them, lost-found, I'm okay with those things. And uh, I don't object to the idea that Jesus is going to go to tax collectors and sinners and tell them to repent. I don't mind that at all. They need to repent. It's about time somebody took a stand and told them they need to repent, right? So finally, somebody's got the guts to stand up and say what's wrong with things around here. And that's, a, that's not a problem for Jesus with good conservatives. What starts to be a problem for good conservatives is um, that he seems to like them. He seems to like the tax collectors and sinners. Like when he talks to them, there's obvious affection there. There's, he's happy to be with them. There's joy in his life. He speaks respectfully to them. He's not just there to tell them what for. He's there to actually befriend them. And that uh, starts to roil the waters a little bit for a good conservative. Like why would, you, why would you do that? Why would you make them think that God likes bad people? Right? Why would you do that? So they mind that a little bit. They really hate the insinuation that Jesus makes 
that they, as good conservative people, are like the tax gatherers and sinners, that they're just as much a charity case as the tax collector, just as much a charity case as the sinner, just as much a charity case as the liberal. And that's offensive. Uh, you're saying that I have the same moral and spiritual standing as people that I consider to be uh, very bad and very much less worthy than me. And I'm not willing to listen to that. I'm not willing to listen to that at all. But Jesus comes and he says that, you know, the arrogance you have when you're content with your own goodness is unjustified. You know, you're, you're not all that. You're not the good person you really think that you are, certainly not by God's standards. And your contentment with your own righteousness makes you ugly. Thinking that you're good makes you repulsive to the people around you because they can smell it on you. Um, it cuts you off from the joy of God, and it makes you unable to communicate that joy to other people. You know who Andy Rooney is? Uh, he was on 60 Minutes for years and years, years and years ago, and uh, would do editorials that were usually pretty funny and insightful. But he said something I loved one time. He said he was faced with a dilemma in his life because he had become convinced that um, unborn children were human beings who had the right to life. In other words, he had become pro-life in his uh, moral stance about uh, babies, unborn babies. He said, but I like pro-choice people so much better than I like pro-life people. And if I was going to go out and have dinner with someone, I would so much rather go out and have dinner with someone who was pro-choice than someone who was pro-life. Um, and I think what he was saying there, he was touching on this, is that... Um, the contentment with our own goodness and our prickliness about our own goodness and rightness makes us repulsive to other people. Uh, people can smell that self-righteousness on us. Judgmental attitudes, joylessness, sterility. And it's what makes us reluctant to have uh, real friendships with people who disagree with us, who are outside the faith or who have different opinions than we do. Um, I mean, you might have somebody that you think of as your project person in your life where you think... If someone starts talking to me about sharing my faith with others, I have someone I can think about that I every once in a while try to make a run at. Or maybe you make raids on occasion and talk to strangers about uh, the Christian faith. But genuine friendships where you share your joys and your weaknesses and your life with people who don't agree with you and you find joy in it like Jesus did with really bad people, uh, good conservatives tend to be cut off from those kind of friendships. We do not connect well that way. And our churches, good conservative people's churches, tend to become self-congratulatory silos where we come in and reinforce each other's prejudices but find that we put up some kind of an invisible force field for people who actually need Jesus' bleeding charity. Uh, they feel like they can't come in because we don't like them and we look down on them. So uh, Jesus says good conservative people uh, are charity cases just as much as tax collectors and sinners and liberals. He says, just because you're not wandering doesn't mean you're not lost. They didn't like that. The uh, religious liberals, the good liberals, didn't like it either. They struggled with Jesus somewhat the same, somewhat differently. They also, content with their own goodness, um, have the same deep assumption that good people are loved and rewarded by God. And but the difference here is they think most people are good. Or if they're not good, they have a good reason for not being good. 
a good excuse for not being good. And I certainly am good, but I think, you know, probably God looks in deep down, sees goodness in every person, and therefore he likes everyone. It's more that idea. So inasmuch as Jesus is having friendships with these uh, people who are otherwise somewhat despised, they're okay with that. That's not what bothers them about Jesus is his friendships. Because um, good liberal person is one of the things you like best about yourself is that I'm, I'm able to be friends with anybody. You know, I, I don't discriminate. Uh, I'm proud of the diversity of my friendships. And, of course, I don't talk to my friends, though, about uh, repentance or their need to change their minds and the idea that they might be lost and needing to be found or rescued, that's not really my territory. I don't like that part about what Jesus does. I, I like the kind of the hippie Jesus nice things about him where he loves people. But when he starts to draw these hard lines um, and uses the binaries of lost and found and things like that, I, I'm a little embarrassed of him. And I start to mind that. I'm uncomfortable. Lost found talk sounds judgy. It sounds provincial, doesn't it? And so I don't like that. And to tell someone they need to repent not only sounds archaic, it just sounds rude. You need to repent, as if I don't. Right? It's, uh, there's just, that's just really uncomfortable territory for a good liberal person. Right? But the thing a good liberal person cannot abide in any way is for Jesus to say that I'm a charity case every bit as much as the Fox News crowd is every bit as much as the conservatives, every bit as much as the tax collectors. If you say I'm their moral and spiritual equivalent, that I need mercy like they do, no, 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 no. I don't. I'm not like them. And so they run into Jesus with all of his sharp edges. A good liberal hears Jesus talking about sin very unapologetically all the time. And it's awkward, right? It doesn't fit the idea that I want to have of him. Um, I mean, you think the cultural conservatives talk about sex ethics in a really uncomfortable way? You listen to Jesus talk about it. He's over the top talking about this. He says you don't even know what sex is or what it's for, and that if you even lust, you've broken his law. <laughs> it's hard enough dealing with the political conservatives. And, uh, and then he's against murder. I mean, I am too. That's what a good person is. But he says if you have condescending anger... You're breaking the Sixth Commandment and committing murder. I mean, condescending anger is my hobby. Right? You know, and he's saying that's breaking his law. And he, he talks about hell and judgment all the time, way more than anybody else in the Bible does. And so eventually Jesus becomes intolerable to a good liberal person. Right? Uh, what he's insinuating is too much to bear because he says the arrogance of the good liberal person is unjustified and it's ugly. It's unjustified, it's ugly. It cuts us off from the joy in the, in the heart of God. So he says you're just as lost as the fundamentalists are even though you're not wandering. So good conservatives, good liberals struggle with Jesus. So why do bad people seem to have such an easy time with Jesus? Why do they seem to love him so easily? Um, I've got I have two surmises. <laughs> One is that they're more comfortable with this talk about being lost than we are. We're all nervous about uh, 
drawing moral lines and talking about where people stand with God and, and whether someone's lost or found, that just seems like that would be really rude and awkward in a conversation and things. And Jesus is not worried about that at all. He talks about it all the time. But I think people outside the church are way more comfortable with that talk than we are. You know, because nowadays you're far more likely to hear someone outside the church talk about lostness than you are someone inside the church. Because people trying to live in a world where they ignore God find that um, uh, their lifestyles can become enslaving as they try to put something in the place of God in their lives or they find that life lived without reference to God at all is pretty pointless in this world. And so people describe feeling adrift and lost and needing to be found. I'll give you one example. I'm sure you could think of many. Uh, one of Douglas Coupland's early books he wrote, he said, My secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. And that's someone who's not a Christian. And I think when people hear Jesus speaking honestly about their situation and honestly about morality in his world, that it's not as abrasive as we might assume that it is. Of course, the difference is when Jesus speaks about these things, he's not abrasive himself. He's not arrogant and condescending or disrespectful as he says these things. Uh, He's affectionate and loving and embracing. And that's kind of the other thing is that for people outside the faith, people who think of themselves not as good people, uh, Jesus' welcome and love is really compelling. More than it is for us, we'll sing the songs about mercy and about it's amazing that Jesus loves us and, you know, struggle to concentrate. But someone who knows himself to be a tax collector, sinner, someone who uh, sees the scornful looks and disdainful looks in other people's eyes every day of the week, When that person sees in Jesus' face the seeking heart of God, the welcoming heart of God, the rejoicing heart of God in having them back home, it is amazing. It does blow people away. And I think that welcome is a huge part of what was magnetic about Jesus with people who are bad people. So you may be a person who's not a Christian who has been uh, put off very badly by condescending, uh, judgmental, hypocritical Christians uh, who are content with their own goodness and don't feel their need of Jesus' mercy. And if you reject the faith because of that, it's a reasonable thing to do, I would say. I'm just asking you please not to. don't reject the faith because of the way we've behaved. Uh, there's one thing that's clear anywhere in the Bible as you read, and that is that if you want to know what the heart of God is toward you, then you should look in the face of Jesus. Because who He is, is who God is. Our understanding of God's heart, His welcome, His seeking, His joy at having us home, uh, is the true story about God. Uh, not we punctilious people who are content with our own goodness. So just know that Jesus wants you. He wants you back. He welcomes you. doesn't despise you. If you're a Christian and uh, you've lived your Christian life pretty much like I have, 
trying to prop up the facade of your own goodness for the world and somewhat to try to fool yourself about who you are, um, then you know it's impossible to try to actually love other people or feel joy about other people when you're so concerned about keeping your facade up and balanced so that it doesn't fall and expose you. Uh, Trying to become more content with your own goodness is not a path to joy or a path to being close to God. Um, I think a lot of us live like bad piano students who had teachers that just made us terrified of making a mistake and cut us off from any hope of ever having musicality or actually loving the music. So we're just making sure that we don't make any mistakes. And what Jesus offers here is a view of a relationship with God that's got lots of musicality and joy in it and not a whole bunch of paranoid fear about making mistakes. Right? He holds out the joy of God over sinners who come home. Not great people, but broken people who come home. And he says heaven is full of joy when that happens. Not because you've impressed heaven with your facade of contentment, uh, but because Jesus gives his bleeding charity to people like us. He does. So if that's you, you need to learn somehow to consent to be loved even though you're not worthy. To consent to be loved even though you're not worthy. And to come in and listen to the music and join the party. Now let's pray.